0: section 27 of english costume this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org english costume by dion clayton calthrop section 27 charles i reigned 24 years 1625 to 1649 born 1600 MARRIED 1625, HENRIETTA OF FRANCE This surely is the age of elegance, if one may trust such an elegant and graceful mind as had Van Dyck. In all the wonderful gallery of portraits he has left, these silvery, graceful people pose in garments of ease. The main thing that I must do is to show how gradually the stiff Jacobean dress became unfrozen from its clutch upon the human form how whalebones in men's jackets melted away, breeches no longer swelled themselves with rags and bran, collars fell down, and shirts lounged through great open spaces in the sleeves. It was the time of an immaculate carelessness, the hair was free, or seemed free, to droop in languid tresses on men's shoulders, curl at pretty will on men's foreheads. Shirts were left open at the neck, breeches were loosed to the knee, do i revile the time if i say that the men had an air a certain supercilious air of being dukes disguised as art students we know all of us the van dyke beard the carolean mustache brushed away from the lips we know lord pembroke's tousled carefully tousled hair killigrew's elegant locks from the head to the neck is but a step a sad step in this reign and here we find our friend the rough utterly tamed Piccadillys now out of request, writes one, tamed into the falling band, the Van Dyke collar, which form of neck-dress has never left the necks and shoulders of our modern youthful prodigies. Indeed, at one time, no youthful genius dare be without one. The variations of this collar are too well known. Of such lace as edged them, and of the manner of their tying, it would waste time to tell, except that in some instances the strings are secured by a ring. Such a change has come over the doublet as to make it hardly the same garment. The little slashes have become two or three wide cuts. The sleeves are wide and loose with, as a rule, one big opening on the inside of the arm, with this opening embroidered round. The cuffs are like little collars, turned back with point-lace edges. The actual cut of the doublet has not altered a great deal. The ordinary run of doublet has the pointed front. It is tied round the waist with a little narrow sash, but there has arrived a new jacket, cut round left open from the middle of the breast sometimes cut so short as to show the shirt below bulged out over the breeches sometimes you will see one of these new short jackets with a slit in the back and under this the man will be wearing the round trunks of his father's time the breeches are mostly in two classes the long breeches the shape of bellows tied at the knees with a number of points or a bunch of coloured ribbons or the breeches cut the same width all the way down loose at the knee and there ornamented with a row of points ribbons tied in bows with tags on them a new method of ornamentation was this notion of colored ribbons in bunches on the breeches in front at the sides at the knees almost anywhere and also upon the coats for some time the older fashioned short round cape or cloak prevailed but later large silk cloaks used as wraps thrown across the shoulders were used as well the other cloaks had straps like the modern golf cape by which the cloak might be allowed to fall from the shoulders a custom arrived of wearing boots more frequently and there was the tall square-toed high-heeled boot fitting up the leg to just below the knee without a turnover the stiff thick leather blacking boot with broad stiff tops also not turned back and there was also the result of the extraordinary melting crumpled dismissal of all previous stiffness whereby the old tall boot drooped down until it turned over and fell into a wide cup, all creases and wrinkles nearly over the foot, while across the instep was a wide, shaped flap of leather. This last falling boot-top was turned in all manner of ways by those who cared to give thought to it. The insides of the tops of these boots were lined with lace or silk, and the dandy turned them down to give full show to the lining. This turning of broad tops was such an inconvenience that he was forced to use a straddled walk when he wore his boots thus. Canes were carried with gold, silver, or bone heads, and were ornamented further by bunches of ribbon. Coming again to the head, we find ribbon also in use to tie up locks of hair. Delicate shades of ribbon belonging to some fair lady were used to tie up locks to show delicate shades of love. Some men wore two long love-locks on either side of their face, others wore two elaborately curled locks on one side only. The hats, as the drawings will show, are broad in the brim and of an average height in the crown, but a dandy here and there wore a hat with next to no brim and a high crown. Most hats were feathered. There is a washing-tally in existence of this time, belonging, I think, to the Duke of Rutland, which is very interesting." It is made of beech wood covered with linen, and is divided into fifteen squares. In the center of each square there is a circle cut, and in the circle are numbers. Over the number is a plate with a pin for a pivot in the center, a handle to turn, and a hole to expose a number. Above each circle are the names of the articles, in this order. Ruffs, bands, cuffs, handkerchief, caps, shirts, -shirts, half-shirts, boot-hose, tops, socks, sheets, pillow-beers, table-cloths, napkins, towels. Tops are linen boot-frills, and half-shirts are stomachers. There remains little to be said, except that black was a favorite dress for men, also light blue and cream-colored satin. Bristol paste diamonds were in great demand, and turquoise rings were very fashionable. For the rest, Van Dyke's pictures are available to most people or good reproductions of them, and those with the knowledge of how such dress came into being are all that can be needed.
1: THE WOMEN There is one new thing you must be prepared to meet in this reign, and that will best be described by quoting the title of a book written at this time, a wonder of wonders, or a metamorphosis of fair faces into foul visages, an invective against black-spotted faces by this you may see at once that every humour was let loose in the shapes of stars and moons crowns slashes lozenges and even a coach and horses cut in black silk ready to be gummed to the faces of the fair knowing from other histories of such fads that the germ of the matter lies in a royal indisposition we look in vain for the conceited history of the princess and the pimple but no doubt some more earnest inquirer after truth will hit upon the story this toy tragedy of the dressing table for the dress we can do no better than look at the ornatus mulibris anglicanus that wonderfully careful compilation by holler of all the dresses in every class of society it is interesting to see how the jacobean costume lost by degrees its formal stiffness and first fardingale and then ruff vanished Early in the reign, the high-dressed hair was abandoned, and to take its place the hair was dressed so that it was gathered up by the ears, left-parted on the crown, and twisted at the back to hold a plume or feather. Time went on, and hair-dressing again altered. The hair was now taken in four parts. First the hair was drawn well back off the forehead, then the two side-divisions were curled neatly and dressed to fall over the ears, The fourth group of hair was neatly twisted, and so made into a small knot, holding the front hair in its place. Later on came the fringe of small curls, as in the portrait of Queen Henrietta at Windsor by Van Dyck. We see at first that while the ruff, or rather the rubato, that starched, lace-high collar, remained, the Fardingale, having disappeared, left, for the upper gown, an enormous quantity of waste, loose material, that had previously been stretched over the fardingale, and parted in front to show the satin petticoat. From this there sprung, firstly, a wide, loose gown, open all the way down and tied about the middle with a narrow sash, the opening showing the boned bodice of the underdress with its pointed protruding stomacher, the woman's fashion having retained the form of the man's jerkin. Below this showed the satin petticoat with its centre strip or band of embroidery, and the wide border of the same. In many cases the long hanging sleeves were kept. Then there came the fall of the rubato and the decline of the protruding figure, and with this the notion of tying back the full upper skirt to show more plainly the satin petticoat, which was now losing the centre band of ornament and the border. With this revolution in dress, the disappearing ruff became at first much lower, and then finally vanished, and a lace collar falling over the shoulders took its place. This gave rise to two distinct fashions in collars, the one as I have described, the other a collar from the neck, like a large edition of the man's collar of that time. This collar came over the shoulders, and in two points over the breast sometimes completely hiding the upper part of the dress. The stiff-boned bodice gave place to one more easily cut, shorter, with, in place of the long point, a series of long strips, each strip ornamented round the hem. At this time the sleeves, different from the old-fashioned tight sleeves, were very full indeed, and the sleeve of the loose overgown was made wider in proportion and was tied across the undersleeve, above the elbow, by a knot of ribbons, the whole ending in a deep cuff of lace. Then the overgown disappeared, the bodice became a short jacket laced in front, openly, so as to show the sleeveless bodice of the same material and colour as the petticoat. The sleeves were not made so wide, and they were cut to come just below the elbow, leaving the wrists and forearm bare. In winter a lady often wore one of those loose Dutch jackets, round and full, with sleeves just long enough to cover the undersleeves, the whole lined and edged with fur. Or she might wear a short circular fur-lined cape, with a small turned-over collar. In summer the little jacket was often discarded, and the dress was cut very simply but very low in the bust, and they wore those voluminous silk wraps in common with the men. The little sashes were very much worn, and ornaments of knots of ribbon or points, that is, a ribbon with a metal tag at either end, were universal. The change of fashion to short full sleeves gave rise to the turned back cuff of the same material as the sleeve, and some costumes show this short jacket with its short sleeves with cuffs, while under it shows the dress with tight sleeves reaching to the wrists where were linen or lace cuffs, a combination of two fashions. Part of the latest equipment now was a big feather fan, and a big fur muff for winter. Also the fashion of wearing long gloves to reach to the elbow came in with the advent of short sleeves. Naturally enough there was every variety of evolution from the old-fashioned to the new, as the tight sleeves did not of course become immediately wide and loose, but by some common movement So curious in the history of such revolutions, the sleeve grew and grew from puffs at the elbow, to wide cuffs, to wide shoulders, until the entire sleeve became swollen out of all proportion, and the last little pieces of tightness were removed. The form of dress with cuffs to the jackets, lacing, sashes, bunches of ribbon, and looped-up skirts, lasted for a great number of years. It was started by the death of the Fardingale, and it lived into the age of hoops. These ladies wore shoe-roses upon their shoes, and these bunches of ribbon, very artificially made up, cost sometimes as much as from three to thirty pounds a pair, these very expensive roses being ornamented with jewels. From these we derive the saying, Roses worth a family. In the country the women wore red, grey and black cloth homespun, and for riding they put on safeguards, or outer petticoats. The wide-brimmed beaver hat was in general wear, and a lady riding in the country would wear such a hat, or hood, and a cloak and soft top-boots. Women's petticoats were called plackets as well as petticoats. With the careless air that was then adopted by everybody, which was to grow yet more carefully careless in the reign of Charles II, the hair was a matter which must have undivided attention, and centuries of tight dressing had not improved many heads, so that when the loose love locks and the dainty tendrils became the fashion, many good ladies and gentlemen had recourse to the wig maker. From this time until but an hundred years ago, from the periwig bought for Sexton the fall of Henry the down to the scratches and bobs of one's grandfather's youth, the wig maker lived and prospered. Today. More secretly, yet more surely, does the maker of transformations live and prosper. But in the days when to be wigless was to be undressed, the perucia was a very great person. This was the day, then, of satins, loosened hair, elbow-sleeves, and little forehead curls. The stiffness of the older times will pass away, but it had left its clutch still on these ladies. How far it vanished, how entirely it left costume, will be seen in the next royal reign, when Nell Gwynne was favourite and Sir Peter Lelly painted her. End of section twenty seven.